how do you run your morning meeting? When Jeff Zucker, the, the former head of CNN, left uh, sort of unceremoniously, there were a lot of articles written about that. My favorite one came from a journalist, Mitra, who basically said, if you wanted to watch the greatest show on earth at CNN, it was to attend Jeff Zucker's morning meeting. No one would miss it because of how he ran it. He understood, he watched everything the night before and found and spoke and shared why certain moments worked, which honored also his team, showed that he was paying attention. He would elevate certain voices that would never otherwise be heard. Sometimes he would stage ahead of time certain moments so that people could really understand what is the cultural metabolism of this place. And it was a, it's a creative act, right? To bring people together, to get them to focus on the same thing at the same time, to figure out how we're speaking and which language we're using, which word choice. All of these things are invented and shaped. And that's true whether you're a host or a guest, but it's, it's, it's a superpower, but it's also the 21st century leadership skill because we are all gathering now and we're often doing it not in the same room. And this is a set of skills anyone can learn. That piece of wisdom is from Priya Parker. Priya is our guest today on the Chase Service Live Show. I want to welcome everybody to another episode. If you're not familiar with Priya's work, you are in for a treat. She is a facilitator, a strategic advisor, and the author, I would say acclaimed author, of an amazing book called The Art of Gathering. The subtitle on that is How We Meet and Why It Matters. This topic has been something that has been um, near and dear to me for long before the pandemic. Uh, in fact, what I have come to know about gathering in person is it um, that has in part defined some of the most meaningful moments in my life, getting together with friends, with co-collaborators, conspirators, uh, across all kinds of different disciplines. And if I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb and say, it doesn't matter if you're an introvert or an extrovert. The reality is that we are all social animals and human connection is critical. What Priya argues in this episode and in her book and other writings is that gatherings have become rather blasé. There are so many aspects of gatherings in our lives that are lackluster or unproductive, and they don't have to be. We have come to rely way too much on routine and convention rather than looking at gathering as what it is. It's an opportunity to create things, to create an experience, to create meaning. And when I'm talking about gathering, I mean everything from weddings to business meetings to conversations with loved ones behind closed doors. In all of these areas and many, many more, we have an opportunity to do something, always have an opportunity to create something special. And again, the question that Priya asks and that I would ask you is, are you taking advantage of those opportunities? The Art of Gathering is your book. It will forever alter the way you look at your next meeting, your next conference, your next dinner party, backyard barbecue, whatever. Whether you're a host or you're attending, this episode is for you. I can't wait. Enjoy yours truly and Priya Parker. I am super happy to welcome you to the show. Priya, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. We are about to have uh, an important conversation. And as human beings, we are social animals. And as I shared with you prior to us beginning the recording, that the people who are listening and watch the show, the fans and the community around it, 
we identify as creators, we identify as entrepreneurs, and all of us as humans have just come through this global pandemic not too long ago where our work life was really stirred up, our social lives, how much we gathered or didn't was uh, definitely put into a blender. Um, we are now, I would like to think, emerging. And if I look at my own behavior through the lens of gathering, which you are an expert in, and we will talk in depth about that today, I, st I still feel a little out of sorts. I'm not sure if I'm a new person, if the habits that I have are, um, are they relics from the past or this, is this a new me? Is this a new normal? There's a lot of things that are what I would say questions in my mind about gathering. And as a, an expert in this field, um, having written, you know, all kinds of stuff specifically around the art of gathering, um, I'm hoping that you can through the lens of where we're going in the future of work, the future of getting together as humans. Um, if you can tell us a little bit specifically on that topic, but also include a little bit of backstory, why this is interesting to you and you know why you might think you're a guest on the show today uh, because of this work that you've done. I mean, if we may start with the idea of a creative and the act of creation, all of gathering at some level, meaning three or more people coming together for a purpose with a beginning, middle, and end, is created. It's invented. We literally make it up. Or someone else did in a previous generation or a previous era or a previous management you know, generation, and we're following it on repeat. And so much of how we come together and when and why and how was on autopilot very much, particularly before the pandemic. And this global pandemic, in a way, by banning, right, it was literally illegal for, for a period of time, banning gathering, banning meeting, it basically made us see that gathering matters, but also that the ways in which we meet, we wed, we mourn, we celebrate new life, we fundraise, we pitch an idea, we launch a film, is also a specific form that someone dreamed up at some point in time. And if you remember, and I'm, I'm happy to kind of get into my backstory a bit, but if you remember, I don't know about you, for me, the moment I remember really realizing that, um, that this pandemic, quote unquote, <laughs> the word people were using to describe this thing that seemed to be coming was gonna be really big was actually the week where South by Southwest was kind of de being debated whether it was being canceled or not. Do you remember that? I do. Yeah, I remember it well. And so much of the, the at least the chat on Twitter, um, were, was people kind of troubleshooting and problem solving if this massive conference, right, this gathering that is responsible for $250 million in local revenue in Austin, Texas, that 
is the site for so many independent filmmakers and entrepreneurs to launch. If we can't actually physically meet, if this thing is going to be canceled, how do we get our ideas out there? And I remember seeing tweets like, well, maybe we could, this is a moment to live stream independent films and the big, you know, companies could watch and we could all vote up. I mean, sort of reimagining what a launch actually looks like. And if you slow down that moment and so many moments, the first few months of the pandemic, it was a moment of, of terror. And it was also a moment of radical invention Yeah, because the forms that we had relied on to do the things we do no longer could be used. And that is a moment of invention, of creativity, of entrepreneur, of entrepreneurialism, entrepreneurship. <laughs> as, a, as an MBA student, my, uh, uh, my, my, my business school would be very sad that I just called it entrepreneurialism, but let's go with it. <laughs> but, Roll but cameras. All that to say is gathering is something that we do all of the time. We've done for time immemorial. And the pandemic, m- more than anyone could have ever imagined, made us basically begin to see it as a unit in time. And I wrote this book, The Art of Gathering. It came out in 2018, so two years before Gathering was banned. <laughs> and part of the reason I I think I, I kind of knew that Gathering is invented is because of the way that I was raised. Um, I'm biracial. I'm bicultural. I was born in Zimbabwe. My mother's Indian. My father's white American. And uh, we eventually moved to Virginia, um, and which is the opposite of Zimbabwe. <laughs> and we and they divorced. They they separated, they divorced, and they each remarried other people. And within three years, I was, they had joint custody, and I went back and forth between these two homes. And I began to see, oh, the way these two families have dinner is very different. Oh, it's not obvious to one side that one would say grace before meal. Oh, the time in which they actually meet, the time in which they dine, who's around the table, the shape of the table, the conversation, the uh, length of time, the rules and norms, who gets up to serve who, how the dishes are washed. I, because I actually just had two different, you know, exact comparisons where I was part of both, I began to see that the way in which we gather down to the level of how we have dinner as a family is literally created through the people and the cultures yeah. that they come from. And I think in part, you know, in my father's house, the ways in which we gathered tended to be at church, tended to be in softball fields, tended to be in on basketball courts. And this kind of, you know, white American, evangelical Christian, Republicans, conservative family, that was the Parkers, and then my Indian side was this sort of Indian, British, Buddhist, landmark, forumy, incense-filled, workshoppy <laughs> household. And I was a part of both. And, and so I've always been interested in when and why and how we come together and when and why and how we come apart. And when the pandemic hit, I mean, I, I became a conflict resolution facilitator. So my day job is still, I'm a group dialogue facilitator. And... I could just kind of see that we were going to start having a pretty massive conversation 
around the social infrastructure of gathering. Hmm. To me, this is, it's the cornerstone of what it means to be human, right? We are social animals, whether we like it or not, whether we're introverts or extroverts. And I have been fascinated by this concept. Uh, you are one of the only people um, I have you know, paid attention to your work for some time and the rhetoric that you use around that getting together is a creative act. My personal beliefs, and I have written at length about it in my most recent book, Creative Calling, that everything that we are doing is a creative act, that we are super creators. That's the thing that differentiates us from all the other species on the planet. And when we come together, we are making choices. Sometimes those choices are active and sometimes they are passive. We're letting history dictate how we get together or cultures or, um, as you just described with your, with your, um, growing up in two different households, I'm curious how that led, you know, this, the belief that we are gathering and that gathering is, um, that can be very, very different. And did that directly tie into you becoming a facilitator or, you know, what was the path to get there? And then if we, you know, on the other side, now we know that you're a facilitator, how has that helped you sort of look through um, the professional lens at gathering such that you were able to write an amazing book, again, The Art of Gathering. Um, help me understand that. Where does the role of you as the professional facilitator fit into the, the young you growing up in two households and how does it help and or differentiate you in your work now? Well, I think I became a facilitator, a, a dialogue facilitator in large part to kind of figure myself out. I, I, you know, my, my husband often jokes, it doesn't take a shrink to explain how Priya got into the field of conflict resolution. I, I, I came up in two families that had very, very different beliefs that had very different ways of even dealing with conflict. And I, uh, and so I think I was very formed by being kind of biracial and bicultural, but also cleaved, if you will. Like I, I was that, but I was that in two very different cultural homes. Mm. Um, and then as a, as a university student, I went to the University of Virginia and I, I was biracial, but I never actually even used that word until I got to college. I didn't, I don't know if I'd ever heard that word. It was a term yeah. that was that was kind of new to me. I mean, I sort of knew what my my mother was and knew what my father was and never really thought more about that. And I um, I think, by the way, the country has really evolved so that the conversations I was having in college, my children are now having in elementary school. You know, yeah. this the, it's also a completely different time. But um, I was frustrated and confused by race relations at the University of Virginia. And I, long story short, I just noticed things like there on Saturday nights, there were white parties, literally like white fraternity parties, maybe one or 5% people of color, but basically white. And then there were black parties and there were black fraternity parties and, you know, within blocks of each other and night after night, the black parties would get broken up by the police and the white parties wouldn't like just, just sort of uh, the first questions people would ask me is what are you? I, I didn't understand why that was the most important question, but I knew that in a culture, the first person, the first question people often ask is really important to that culture. And so I learned mm -hmm. very quickly, oh, I'm supposed to say I'm biracial, half white American, half Indian. And I, UVA has a very strong sense of student self-governance. And I, two older students basically said to me, if you have, if you, think there's a problem here, do something about it. 
And so I started researching and studying the history of race at the University of Virginia. I started um, looking at what the other other initiatives had been to try to change race, the culture of race at UVA. I looked at the history of desegregation. I looked at the history of uh, of when women joined un- the university. And I learned about this process called sustained dialogue, which um, was this intergroup dialogue model that helped people basically have conversations across difference mm-hmm. rather than only talking about it behind closed doors. And two students and I launched Sustained Dialogue at the University of Virginia on September 10th, 2001. Wow. And of course, 9-11 happened the next day. And and th- this actually goes back to our, our conversation earlier of gathering being a creative act When I say we launched Sustained Dialogue, like what does that actually mean? It means that we sent a letter to the university, to administration, to administrators and students saying, we are bringing this thing called Sustained Dialogue to the University of Virginia to positively address our racial climate, right? We created, like a gathering doesn't start at the moment people enter the room. A gathering starts at the moment of discovery, this future promised state that we're inviting you to come into. And usually that moment of discovery is an invitation. It's a letter. Like an invitation is a story. Oh, I'm going to have this massive rave in three weeks, right? It hasn't happened yet. I'm creating a temporary alternative world that I'm sharing a mental model and a story with you. And then I'm hosting you all the way up to that rave so that ideally if I'm doing it well, you are showing up with the, you know, best outfit attitude, ready to you know, rumble um, in every way. But, but what we basically did is saying we wanted to start this thing. And then because 9-11 happened and the entire university needed kind of a way and a place to process, not just once, but kind of many times over and over again, sustained dialogue as this small group dialogue model, literally meaning 10 to 12 students committed to meet every two weeks for three hours at a time, often in a classroom, or in someone's living room to talk to to go through a curriculum and talk about race, often with people who are different from them, over the course of an entire year. Right? It was a commitment to dialogue. That is how, and it began, and it, and it exploded. We we it became a very large student organization. It spread to other campuses, and very quickly, and kind of just and my peers, my as well like an entrepreneur, if you want to use that language, kind of like continuing to follow where is the need, where is the heat, where is the need, where is the heat, where is the interest, and how do we make sure we have the tools we need to match that need, and how do we start building it? And in the context of creating that, you know, vessel, that 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 technology, right, that social technology of launching these small group dialogues, we learned how to moderate conversations. We had Hal Saunders and other senior facilitators come down to the University of Virginia and train us in active listening, in holding a room, in getting people off their scripts. And I think in just kind of following that thread and and it being personally interesting to me, I wasn't doing this for someone else. I wasn't doing this to be a do-gooder. I was doing this because I was trying to sort out myself and sort out my own relationship to this country that is you know, supposed to be mine. And yet I have so many questions about it. It ended up being this really interesting canvas for me to, to, to answer kind of one Wednesday night at a time, who are we and how do we want to be here together? Mm. 
there's so much, um, there's so many different directions that I am compelled to take our conversation, <laughs> but I, I feel like there's a foundation in a couple different areas. I'm just, yeah, I was just scribbling some notes down here so I don't forget them, but the, you know, if we operate under the umbrella that to gather is a creative act, um, and you talked about when you sent your invitation or you sent your note to the university that was in a sense, an invitation and that, that act is, is basically all around us at all times. And we have, I think, uh, to great harm, we've ignored that. And, you know, if I read not too far in between the lines of your work, you can see that you've been frustrated with the fact that, Hey, look, we're not doing a great job of getting together. And this means socially, this means at big events like weddings yes. and funerals, this means even in individual meetings within companies. Um, I would extend it to another cornerstone of this conversation with, you know, the creative act is largely a collaborative act, right? Even if you're a solo songwriter, you have to have recording technicians and all these other things. So, you know, I want to set the table to go to a couple of these different um legs of a stool, if you will. But I'm fascinated by the fact that you think about the gathering starts long before the gathering. There are assumptions that we're making against, especially with weddings, funerals, some of the ways that we've convened in the past. I want to start though with meetings only because it's so dang obvious and it's changed a lot over the course of the past two years, especially. So in a professional setting, and this can be whether you're a solopreneur, entrepreneur, or you're at a, at a large company, uh, how have meetings been affected in the past few years? What can we do differently to take it in a new direction? So even before the pandemic hit, there were studies that showed that the number one cause of rage among employees <laughs> were rage, meetings yeah. to <laughs> like rage, not boredom, rage. rage. I, I was going to say that's <laughs> such a choice, such a choice word. <laughs> such a choice word. Those researchers choice, knew what they're doing. Yeah. And, and too many meetings and ineffective meetings, right? It was distracting us from our work. And so that was true well before the pandemic. The pandemic I, made it even more glaringly obvious. Right? You, you, it's kind of hard to hide a bad meeting on Zoom. Right? Like in person, it's you being have recorded op- in lots of many ways. <laughs> yeah, <right>? it's also <laughs> being recorded. You have almonds in the middle of the table. You can grab someone on the way out the door. You can, you know, pass. There's, there's just so much else going on that at some level, if it's somewhat of theater, it's like, you know what? There's enough other substitutes or subsidies that's going to get me think- through this. On Zoom, right, it's a contextless space, meaning we create the meaning. We create the conversation. And so there's different moments of the pandemic that have kind of helped us sort through these, you know, these various needs and problems. But basically, first, the first thing I think the pandemic did is it I don't know if you remember, there was this New Yorker cartoon early in the pandemic, and it was like, I well, I guess all of those meetings really could have just been emails. Right. There is this there is this kind of social pause in our personal lives and in our and in our work lives where we just didn't meet. Like literally all meetings were just canceled for two or three weeks. And there are some emergency meetings. And then there's this interesting vacuum where organizations and companies and also creative teams had to ask, 
well, how should we meet? And what do we need to do collaboratively? Which is a really important question. What yeah. do we need to do collaboratively? When do we actually need each other? And when are we better on our own? I know comic, uh, comedic writers' rooms where for, they had to move fully on Zoom. I was interviewing one of the one of the writers, and she said, "You know, we used to be around a table, and I could barely ever get a word in edgewise because there was so much jockeying. Now we had to temporarily." pause and we all write on our own and then come together to share our writing on Zoom. And so many more of my ideas have come through and all of our ideas are actually better, right? And so that that's one case in which a, a, in a creative process, these are really specific questions that are up for yeah. contestation. Do we write better alone? Do we write better together? How, like where and how are you actually tweaking this, 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 this process? You know, I had a podcast that was supposed to... <laughs> That, that was, we sold it to the New York Times. It was actually called, it was supposed to be called Gather. <laughs> Good timing. <laughs> <With> Priya Parker. <laughs> Good and, timing. And we'd been recording it for like four or five months. We had, it was sort of like Queer Eye for gatherings. So I would like sit, I'd kind of ride along with different people trying to make their gatherings more meaningful. A, a charter school that realized that their gala model was absolutely the opposite of the principles of equity and diversity that they were trying to build their school on. So how do you reimagine the gala weddings? You know, I had brides and grooms with like voice memos on, hitting record during their vows to, to sort of get audio tape. We had all of this tape. And the week the pandemic hit, a producer texted me and said, Priya, we have to pause the show. A show about gathering is going to sound like a horror film. <laughs> oh. And he was right. Yeah. And we, and I, my like DMs were still blowing up on Instagram. I, I was still getting emails. The questions hadn't stopped. They just changed, which is how now do we do this? How do I gather my, my family for Passover Seder for 35, after 35 years, do we do it on Zoom? How do I coordinate my team? And so we pivoted. And so just to, to kind of land the, put a finer point on it, my podcast team, right? Engineers, producers, Mm -hmm. recorders, sound editors went from being all in the same office to being scattered around the country, having to like ship me the microphone I'm talking on right now, wipe it down, you know, on both ends <laughs> and basically took a creative process that used to be completely in the room. And we had to really figure out what do we need to do together and what can we do apart? Oh, we can script a part. Oh, some of the scripting is actually really good when I'm solo. Wow, we don't need to, you know, bounce every single idea off of one another. We have to move faster. And I think in any type of collaboration to actually pause and think through what do we need to do together and what do we need to do apart is like the fundamental question to start navigating and sorting through all of this. Mm. Do you feel like since we're on the creative tip here, that has that been established now? Did did what happened during the pandemic, looking backwards for a couple of years, did we rewrite the rules and now there are new rules, or have we just become aware that the rules are up for discussion and we can apply whatever structure and function we want going forward? I think it's more of the latter in this moment. And I think we are in a moment where 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 
literally like is this in person is this yep. remote is this not at all is this on slack <laughs> where and when and how we meet and who decides is up for grabs but i also think it'll settle and that's why this important whatever it is good or bad we can't have questions up forever it's kind of exhausting for systems and so wherever it settles is going to you know is going to be the new normal and that's why this moment is so important to actually pause and really think about like at the deepest level who are my people and how do i want to spend time with them right at mm. at work but also in our in our regular lives you know i think the second thing the pandemic may have shown to some and may not have to others but one really important part of of gathering is is gathering is it's a creative act but but that creative act is how we make meaning together gathering is a is a meaning making mechanism <laughs> do you like that alliteration i love yeah. it <laughs> <laughs> gathering love is it. a meaning making vehicle and so what do i mean by that and i and this is where you really start thinking about if you take the creative kind of spirit act need of of whatever your canvas might be and just kind of take it to this this example of gathering you know when people start thinking about okay why am i throwing a dinner party right one of the biggest mistakes we actually make when we gather is we obsess over the form we assume it has to look a certain way and then we put our creative act into making that form beautiful right so if you think about a dinner party for example um you know thinking about a woman i know journalist jancy dunn years ago she she was on assignment actually to throw a dinner party and she called me up and and asked me can you gather art of gathering my dinner dinner party and i think in like traditional forms we would think how do you make this thing more beautiful what do you serve right where do you put the wine how do you make the tablescape and what i asked her is i think the fundamental question of the creative act is well what is a need in your life stop obsessing about the form first start with the function what is a need in your life that by bringing together a specific group of people you might be able to address Mm. And she kind of leaned back and she was like, I don't really know if this is what you mean or if this counts, but I the other day I was at a friend's house and she cut me uh, she made me a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, cut it into triangles, and I'm I'm a worn out mom and she fed me and I burst into tears. And I said, "Why did you burst into tears?" And she said, "Because I realize it's been a long time since someone took care of me." And wow. she and I said and she said what if I threw a dinner party for my other worn out moms? And I said give it a name. Right? As we start to build this thing. Don't just say dinner party, give it a name and she called it the worn out moms hootenanny. And then she I said and give it a rule. Give it a give it a pop-up rule. Give it some shape. And she said if you talk about your kids, you have to take a tequila shot. Oof. And she started getting more and she started laughing, getting more and more excited, started realizing, oh my gosh, this is something I actually want to do. And so she said, what, you know, what do I do? How do I do it? And I said, send it in an email, right? No, not a fancy invitation. Subject line matters. So the first thing is we start thinking about the meetings you run or the gatherings you create is like, give your gatherings a name. Names contain social contracts within them, right? I talked earlier about the rave, right? Is this a rave? Is this a bonfire? Is this a mosh pit? Is this a hootenanny? Is this a barn raising right all of these words these language actually gives us an emotional and psychological 
like on ramp as to what this thing is that I'm being asked to guest. And I told her, tell the peanut butter and jelly story sandwich in your, you know, in the email. And she did all of this. And long story short, they had this amazing night. She wrote about it. I think it's in Real Simple Magazine. And, and, but what she actually did was she created, she shifted temporarily the culture in her group by first gathering around a real authentic need, a relatively vulnerable need, by seeing the people and assuming in her own community, who else might be feeling this, who else are working parents or working mothers in this case. But she was, it was also specific and disputable. Is this for dads? Not this time. If you're a little bit worn out, more worn out, you could gather, you know, you could come too. Is it, you know, what if I don't want to take a tequila shot? Well, then don't talk about your children. She shifted the boundaries, the dialogic boundaries of what these women tend to talk about when they come together. She took it off the table. And part of what gathering is, like all of those different parts, whether it's in a meeting, right? How do you run your morning meeting? When Jeff Zucker, the the former head of CNN, left uh, unceremoniously, there were a lot of articles written about that. My favorite one came from a journalist, Mitra, um, who basically said, if you wanted to watch the greatest show on earth at CNN, it was to attend Jeff Zucker's morning meeting. Wow. No one would miss it because of how he ran it. He understood, he watched everything the night before and found and spoke and shared why certain moments worked, which honored also his team, showed that he was paying attention. He would elevate certain voices that would never otherwise be heard. Sometimes he would stage ahead of time certain moments so that people could really understand what is the cultural metabolism of this place. And it was a, it's a creative act, right? To bring people together, to get them to focus on the same thing at the same time, to figure out how we're speaking and which language we're using, which word choice, all of these things are invented and shaped. And that's true whether you're a host or a guest, but it's, it's, it's a superpower, but it's also the 21st century leadership skill because we are all gathering now and we're often doing it not in the same room. And this is a set of skills anyone can learn. This is exactly where I would like to pick our conversation. You're, it's like you're reading my notes. <laughs> so the, you've given us a model the, you know, with, with Jeff's meetings and with the, um, the mom's hoot nanny, the idea that gathering people is a creative act. Um, all of this has to do with setting some sort of an intention and I find that, um, especially through your stories right now, if I'm mapping the last 10 gatherings that I had, either I was a part of, I hosted or whatnot, the lack of intention seems yes. to be where we have radically, woefully missed the mark. Am I wrong in that? Or are there other things that if we wanted to get started and we want to send our listeners and watchers away with? What's the, how do you get started doing this to create more value in the, in the, and meaning in the gathering spaces and the places that we want to bring people together? How ought one start? Where do you start? I said this earlier. I said the gathering doesn't begin when people enter the room. It begins in the guest's mind at their moment of discovery, right? At this moment of invent, invitation. And this invitation is an act of world creation if you do it right. It's not just a carrier of logistics, 
right? I want to invite you into an evening in which we, though you are a parent, I invite you to not talk about your children. Otherwise, you will have to take the secret potion when you do, right? I, I want to invite you into a world in which we are coming together to wed like none other have wed before. And for you to be able to come, we want you to wear the simple, the single best thing in your closet, no shopping, right? These are, these are acts of world creation through, your, through what you literally say in your invitation. Hmm. And in order to actually do that in your invitation, if the gathering starts at the moment of discovery in your guest's mind, an artful host, an artful gatherer thinks well before anyone is in the room about what is the purpose of this thing? What is the need? Why does the team need to meet this week? What is the core purpose of the staff meeting this week? Why do I, what is in my need in my life at 32 or 42 or 72 for this birthday? And to start way upstream, to pause and just bring intention to this very simple, but actually very also complicated question of how do I want to spend my time and with whom and how? Mm. And in so, and, and, and by the way, if you're listening to this and you're like, you know what? I love the way I spend time with my friends. I love the way I spend time with my family. I love my colleagues. And we, and we, we got this. You are lucky and like, keep doing what you're doing. This is really for people who want to up the value of meaning in their gatherings and feel like people are either distracted or haven't thought through why they're actually there. Think about their, their effectiveness. I mean, just maybe state the obvious. We gather, we should gather because we need each other. I literally can't build a house, right? In the olden days, right? A barn raising. I cannot build this barn without other people, right? In religious traditions, in the Jewish tradition, there are, you know, there's, there's beliefs and sacred texts. God is present when 11 or more people are gathered, right? Whatever your, whatever your belief system, there's all of these different ways in which we literally cannot solve this problem without one another. And yet so often in our gatherings, we leave as guests, not feeling of use, but used, Mm. right? You go to a product launch, you go to a art exhibit, you go to a book launch and there's a sense of like, oh my gosh, all they cared about was having bodies in the room. All they cared about was, you know, having the perfect Instagram shot. All they, like, it could have been me. It could have been anyone else. They just needed a breathing pulse. And that's such a wasted opportunity. And, and often it's not from actually from bad intent. It's from lack of intention. It's from not pausing and actually asking, well, what is the specific need of this book launch? So let me, let me give an example. This was, speaking of book launches, um, a few years ago, uh, there, was a book, there was a book that came out. And every example I talk about, I have permission to talk about it. There's a book that came out where the, 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 the narrative of the book itself was about secrets lovers keep from each other. Okay? It was a, sort of a, it was a novel. And um, the, the host of this book party was the publicist, creative, brilliant woman. And she didn't just say, oh my gosh, right? She, this woman has to launch maybe 12 to 15 books a year. So uh, sorry, a season, right? There's a lot of book launches. There's some version where it's like, how do we just cram bodies into the room? But what she does every time is she pauses and she asks these questions. What is the, what is the deepest purpose of this book? Who is this book for? 
What are the core ideas of this book? Who might be interested in that? How do we help people understand why they should read this thing? And so what she ended up doing was if you were invited to that book launch, the invitation came in as a postcard, to double-sided postcard. On the front was an invitation to this book launch, to, this, to a night of drinks or whatever it was for, to celebrate this book. And on the back of the postcard with a self-addressed, uh, self-addressed and postage stamp said, write, uh, write us a secret you've kept from your partner. They mail wow. it in. And six weeks later, when people entered that room, all around the wall, uh, anonymously, sorry, and it said anonymously, all around the room were the guests' confessions <laughs> of the secrets they'd kept from their partners, past or present, right? Immediately, it just established the the, the entire purpose of the book, right? This isn't some random novel. This is us, right? It's a world, but it's 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 a it's a window into some characters, but it's also a mirror, right? It it created frisson within the room. The instructions people knew that they would be they would be shared in some way. They didn't know how, and it was this incredible evening in which people felt deeply connected to the book. They understood why they were there, but they also made use of the other guests. And so often we. Think about only, at best, connecting host to guests, right? The person launched yeah. the, the singer, the musician to the crowd. But we so rarely think laterally. And it's such a missed opportunity that can be done so simply to just shift the mood to make it meaningful, purposeful, and fun. When you start to you step back and you look at your work, um, I've had the good fortune of preparing for our conversation today and listening to a bunch of other um recordings like ours today um i want to touch on sort of profound uh gatherings or gatherings that have sort of an undercurrent and a historical uh context like weddings and funerals um our mutual friend brene brown brene has been on the show many times helped me a lot in <laughs> life and and with my creative pursuits you talked about her wedding and i want to i'm just going to put a pin in this is what you're saying that we have the ability to choose the worlds that we create anytime we get together? Because right now we've talked about um, a book launch, for example, and I want to hear the bit about the wedding, Brene. Uh, I think you broke down her wedding for her. And now she understands a little <laughs> bit more about it. It was a funny little segment there. Um, and I think, you know, when we talk about um, getting people together for weekly meetings at work, you start to unpack, oh, wow, this is really useful and it's useful very, very broadly. Is it literally gathering anytime? You started out by using an example of dinner. So I'm hoping you can help like put a um, maybe a microscope on what you're actually proposing we do, is this possible that every time we gather, it's a creative act or is that exhausting and it's too hard for us and we should, you know, sometimes you just get together and you have dinner with your friends or is there, is this an opportunity to shape our world, to create the world that we want to live in every day? What, which, which I'm, I'm, I'm personally not stuck, but I'm trying to put myself in the mind and the heart of the listener who's, this is a very new concept. Holy shit. You I mean, I get to actually, 
these are creative acts and I get to, you know, set the table and draw the, you know, and create the, the vision and the everything. And, and if so, is that, oh my God, now I'm overwhelmed because everything has to be a masterpiece. I need to take a nap. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like a lot of work. So, you know, help us navigate. It's such a great this. question. The first thing I would say is gathering in this way is a practice to nurture over time. It's a way of thinking. It's a different lens. And there's a number of ways to practice this. First is as a guest. So most of us are actually guests much more often than we're hosts. That's certainly true for me. And guests have a lot of power at gatherings. We tend to think like, oh, it's just the host. This book is called The Art of Gathering, not The Art of Hosting, because guests have a lot of power. And if this feels overwhelming to you, just start thinking about your guesting game. And I have a monthly newsletter. It's free. It's open to the public. And, and I recently wrote about the art of guesting and how do you intentionally guest and first just pause and to think about as invitations come in to actually make a connected yes, an enthusiastic yes, or a connected graceful no to actually clear and really choose what do I actually want to attend and why? In part, because when we're going to stuff we don't want to be, work is a different, you know, is a, is a different situation. So just first in social lives, we tend to be, we tend to, you know, vent our rage <laughs> at the gathering, right? We're texting on our phone, we're rolling our eyes, we were sort of, sort of huffing and puffing in, in ways that are actually really affect everyone else. So if you, at some level, like to choose really intentionally, this it's almost a sacred practice. Like, where do I want to go? And when I want, and I, when I show up, I really show up. The second is when you do decide to guess and you choose to go someplace, there are ways that guests fundamentally shift and change a gathering. I recently, I live in New York and Bemelman's Bar is kind of this famous iconic bar that's been around for over 80 years, it's it's recently been taken over or like rediscovered, perhaps is a better word, by Gen Z. And I went there a few months ago, um, actually with my in-laws, and sat down and everyone was kind of like taking photos of the drinks and sort of chatting with each other. And in the middle of the table was this incredible grand piano and piano player. And, and it was just kind of background noise. Everyone was just talking in their own table. And then this one group of guests came in. They sat at the very front. They, they, they were seated in front of the piano. They moved their chairs around to one side so they could see the piano. And after the next song, they started clapping insanely. And everyone looked up, kind of shocked, and almost like zombies waking up, right? Started clapping also. And this then happened again. This then happened again. And I was, I was shifted. I was altered by these guests. They made me hear the music differently. They, they turned us from 12 disparate tables into an audience, into a concert. And that was, you, that was, that they, they altered us at guests. I know of a wedding. Someone wrote me, wrote me about a wedding they went to where it was in sort of a very large venue and guests were very lost. Like they couldn't, they literally couldn't find the ceremony. And this guest was actually a plus one. They didn't know, they didn't know the couple getting married, but, but they saw that all of these people were lost and she, she practiced artful guesting, very playful woman. And she basically 
started, she figured out where it was and she created a game of phone tag among the guests to shift and to pass on the secret as to where the ceremony was. And she fundamentally changed the meaning of that transition, right? I know another evening I was at where it was a home where a couple was inviting their friends and family to kind of come together as a housewarming. And and people knew that's why it was the first time anyone was coming to their home. It was over dinner, but conversation was just kind of conversation. And at one moment, one of the guests leaned over to the host and said, would you mind if I asked everyone to go around and just share their favorite spot or moment in your home? And the host kind of looked a little shy and said, sure. And so the guest dung her glass and said, I'm so, I don't know about y'all, but I am so happy to be here tonight. What a beautiful occasion. And I am, I just love like what you've done here. And I wanted to share, and I was wondering if everyone would go around and just share like little moments, little pockets of what you notice. And people kind of like looked slightly surprised. She modeled, you know, the thing I most love is that little nook hidden inside the children's room right? Where they hide their little unicorns. What a playful touch. It makes me think of how you care so deeply, even as you work for your children and for their small moments, right? Then someone else started, then someone else. She modeled, she shifted the whole evening. Yeah. By, and it wasn't gratuitous. It was, she, she understood she was reading the need, right? She increased the volume of meaning making in that evening. Now, do you have to do this all the time? No. Do I sometimes you know, what is it? Ship it in, sail it in. My husband always makes fun <laughs> of me that in. I phone it in. <laughs> and maybe it's like growing up in other places. I always like get these sayings wrong. You know, do I sometimes phone it in? Absolutely. I I actually love being a guest more than I love being a host. Like I love being a guest. And you know what? Really good guests. That's a really wonderful practice to start mm-hmm. becoming really good host. But all of this is just, it's a way of seeing, it's a way of practicing. And you start noticing, oh, that's why that worked. Oh, that's why that worked. Oh, interesting. That's why that didn't work. Why did the energy dissipate at the end of the night, at that night, but the other ones, people went until two in the morning? Huh. Maybe it was because at the moment of transition, someone suggested a game and rallied the troops and it was a game that everyone was willing to play. How interesting. I, I love the moments where someone chooses to stand up and, or say something extra nice about the host or you know, I'm I'm uh, basically setting a moment, adding some meaning where there wasn't some. Or it's an act of generosity. Yeah, that's what it feels like to me. And you know, I um, a friend of mine is very good at this. Used to own restaurants, and um, he's gone on to have a very successful career in in gathering across all kinds of different vectors. And he and he inspired. Uh, basically a, a a forum a creative act that we were doing together and when i was listening to you describe these things the setting of the table a, a stating of an intention i actually just brought up this little project and i'm wondering if you can critique our the, in real time here throw rocks at this but you know, I'm sort of I'm the Chase Jarvis the, Shark Tank. <laughs> yeah, I'm patting myself on the back a little bit here. For Amazing. A so here's the uh, this is the about for the project. Um, Many a musical career begins with small audiences, impromptu performances, 
late night mutterings, and then the lucky end up on large stages and tucked deep inside recording studios, often vastly disconnected from those that love their music. Our friends in the music industry have bellyached that the industry folk hardly ever share food in a meaningful way or rarely just get together and chill. So we've decided to create a set of evenings for our musician friends built around long tables, remarkable locations, sturdy drinking food, and bottles of wine and whiskey with the hope that throughout each night, songs would rise up from the table. So without going further, we... we have invited a set of musicians and we basically prepare a bunch of food. And these musicians were here in Seattle, happened to be world famous musicians that either know one another, know of one another. And we were able to get these people together and do a series of dinners. Is that what you mean by stating intentions just enough to like, Hey, we're going to get some, you know, people together who normally don't get together. We're usually locked away. And what could we have done more and different to make this? And this is a number of years ago, and it, it did go on to be successful and fun and, and whatnot. But I'm wondering, give, give me a grade here. And then, you know, how would you, how would you add to this? Um, first of all, whoever wrote that copy or language is it's beautiful, right? You, you established a need, right? The, and you, you, you also temporarily, so here's, here's, here's what I think you did well. What are the attributes? And yeah. What are the attributes? Here's what I think you did bad. well or artfully. Okay. And here's, here's the place for improvement. So I think what okay. you did really artfully is you established a need, you temporarily equalized, right? So part of, and this isn't true in every, in every context, but there, there's, there's power dynamics in every group. You temporarily equalize, which is you made all of these kind of big fancy musicians reckon back to them, harken back to the moment where they were busking, right? Where mm -hmm. they were yeah. in a train station, where they had small audiences. And so even this, it's a, it's a slight tilt, but it's like we all started somewhere. And the second thing is then we all yearned in some strange way for that magic again, mm -hmm. right? For that, everything's before us. Right. So that is beautiful. There's a sort of like this tapping into this nostalgic need. There's an equalizing of guests, right? By making them all pre-successful. There's also uh. an equalizing of guests in that you are, you have an empathy for the very successful, for the loneliness of the very successful, which is a very deep knowing, Right? Most people say, boo-hoo, these famous musicians, poor things being stuck in the Sony studios. You are going actually slightly beyond that. This is for this specific crew. This is a real loneliness. There is a hunger yeah. here. And then, and then the language was incredibly beautiful. And then, it, and then the last thing I'd say is, you know, I often call this in my, um, in my digital course, the math and the poetry. Right? So you find the need, and then you have to figure out what's the structure. And so the structure, it sounds like, was meals. And maybe yep. and and maybe coming up with songs. Were you kind of jamming together, or it was all food and conversation? We we did go on to elaborate. Basically, you bring a song that is about food or drinking to the table and perform it in exchange for your food, essentially. And sing so, for your supper, beautiful. Yes, sing for your supper. Yeah, beautiful. So so I think a couple of things. One is I talked a little bit in that book launch example. I didn't use this word then, but there's some amount of risk, right? Gatherings are transformative mm -hmm. when there's some amount of risk in the room, when there's some amount of shared weight, when there's some amount of even transgression. And so there's another move you made that's smart, that's bringing them, having the, everyone's interested to see what someone else is going to sing, mm -hmm. particularly when it's not from their, like, magnum opus, right? Mm -hmm. If I'm singing right. like a um, Irish sea shanty, right? That's interesting. 
Yeah. And 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 I imagine it it also built camaraderie across those musicians. So like beautiful, bravo. I think yeah, the one I told place you I was sort of pat- patting myself on the back <laughs> and sharing that, but I just want to like give you an actual example. If you yeah, know. great. So okay, so, so here's where do the we one help? place I think you could you could where where I was surprised what the form was, which is you named this need, which was a learn a, 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 be, be, musicians being swept away into these studios and disconnected from the people who love their music the most. So what I thought you were talking about was that the other guests would be audiences, would be mm. audiences and these small locations. So the risk wasn't people coming together who are already successful sharing a meal and a song. It'd be either having them go and busk in a non-performative, non-Instagramming way, like in a way that actually yeah. felt kind of like like terrifying in an emotional way, right? Busk on Canal Street, but, you know, bus at the, at the, on the tube, um, busk, or reconnecting them with small audiences in a risky way. So I think the only, like the next kind of the metaphor is like, who are the guests? And so it sounds yeah. like you solved for the problem of companionship and loneliness yeah. and sharing and generation of new songs, but there it's maybe the counterintuitive uh, effect of this is that they're then becoming even more into their sort of like musical gilded age and Got not it. connecting with the audiences who love them or who could. Got it. Got it. But it's super, beautiful. Super helpful. It was a, it was a incredible project. We're thinking about bringing it back to back. It was a number of years ago and these are among the most, you know, famous musicians of the last 20 years, multi, you know, 10, 20 plus X platinum folks. So it was a really, really fun project. It struck me like that was one of my first really deep dives into professional gathering. That is one of the reasons, A, I first became acquainted with your work because I'm so passionate about it now. And I feel like I, it, it is an art and I still have a lot to learn. Um, but I want to change the discussion now and, and orient towards sort of the future of gathering. So you've talked a little bit about stating intentions at the beginning. You gave the, you know, a couple different examples. Um, I would like you to give an example about how we can um, get better at this with some modern examples. I used Brene's wedding. I would like to hear from you on that. But where is this going? Where, where is, you know, we're talking about the future of work, for example, or in this community, maybe the future of gathering. Are there some really clear threads? Are we getting better at this? Are we getting worse at this? And do we have some, are there some assignments that you can give us to take, to help us participate in the world that you're trying to get us to see? So first again, give us a couple examples around weddings and funerals, because your work talks so much about those in a very, very eloquent way and a way to do it different and special. And then where's it all going? So the role of gathering, of hosting, of choosing our rituals has never been more democratic and has never been more distributed. And what do I mean by that? Even, even 50 years ago, let alone 200 years ago, the majority of people who, people, more people went to church, more people went to synagogue, more people identified as religious. If that was true in your weddings and your funerals, there's a specific person who has spent their entire life training to host that funeral, to officiate that wedding, right? 
we have lower and lower trust in our companies, right? There's more and more people starting their own companies, freelancing, all of the different forms in which people used to go to a specific gatherer with a capital G, right? There's a specific person in a community who does this thing. That has basically been broken wide open. And we are all gatherers now. So what do I mean by that? I'll, I'll give a couple of examples of a wedding and a funeral. So you keep, you know, you've brought up the Brene, um, Brene's wedding and, and this kind of connects to your earlier question of like, do I reimagine everything or, or yeah. is it okay to just do small bits? Um, so the example that she gave, I was talking about how do you reimagine a funeral or a wedding or any type of baby shower when the form doesn't resonate with you, or for some reason you come from difference, right? People are getting married across different religions cultures. or cultures, yeah. Yeah. queer weddings, right? All, all sorts of all sorts of people for whom these rituals did not were not designed for, right? They did not have us in mind. And Brene gave this example where she, if I remember correctly, she was sort of talking about her. She identifies as Christian and having a relationship with a God. She wasn't totally thrilled about having. A, her wedding at church. And this is public information. It was in our podcast yes, interview. So I, I'm not sharing yeah. anything out of turn. And she ended up doing it her way, which was she did, she ended up, she and Steve got married in a church, but, or, and she walked down an aisle, right? So it's like all of these different forms. What are we choosing? What are we throwing out? What are we keeping? And, but she did it wearing cowboy boots holding Texas wildflowers and marched down the aisle to the song, how do you solve a problem like Maria? Right. <laughs> and so for funny. her, right. So it was this like, it was, it was specificity. It was personalization. It was a little bit of a wink. It was slightly transgressive. And if you really wanted to like double click or triple click on the sound of music reference, like, Part of the sound of music, you know, Maria leaves the church, leaves the convent at the end of the movie for love. But part of part of what her entire grappling and reckoning is as a nun in that in that movie, in that film was like. What does it mean to be close to God? Right. Are you close to God singing, singing on the top of a hill between trees or are you close to God in a dark space inside a church? Like th these are these are really interesting questions. And in our weddings and our funerals, these are moments often because these are rituals that are passed down that we get a moment when we are getting married or helping someone else sort of design their ritual to actually think about, well, what do I believe? What do we believe? Who are we? And what at some level do we want our sacred union to be? You know, there and all of these rituals reflect older economic assumptions, right? The white, the daughter is walked down the aisle with her father to be passed on to her husband. It was in part because it was an economic transaction, you know, for a long yeah. time. And couples are rethinking whether they want an aisle. There are couples who, my actually monthly newsletter is about this very topic right now. There are couples who both, my husband and I both walked down the aisle with each of our parents. There are people, I, I know a woman who came and rode her sister's motorcycle, right, down the aisle. I know other couples who are choosing not to have an aisle, but a circle, right? Th these are all actually fundamental formations. But all of that to say is you don't have to throw out the whole thing. 
But you might want to think about what's the, and this is true at work meetings too. What's the origin of this meeting? Who first called this meeting? Why at the New York Times is there a page one meeting that's 80 years old when the majority of readers no longer access the New York Times through a physical paper, right? Whether you're talking about your wedding or whether you're talking about some kind of hollowed tradition, maybe your family, 35th year anniversary family, rich family reunion, but someone created these mechanisms at some point. And all I'm saying is pay attention to them and choose intentionally whether you want to reify them and you say, that is actually absolutely me and this is who I want to be and this is who we are, whether you want to tweak them or whether you want to reinvent them anew. And that is true at all, at all in our work lives, in our social lives, in our communal lives. Mm. So we are on the cusp of reinvention, not just because it has always been something we could do, but especially because we have just stirred up for the past couple of years all what we thought was required or we thought was natural or native or it's all been thrown in a blender. So if we apply that same lens to um, work and to as in the future of work or the future of meetings or the future of creative collaborations, can is it safe to assume that there's a new norm and can we write our own scripts across all of these things? I think this is the question that's really up for grabs right now. And there are, I have a digital course that we just launched. And one of the most interesting parts of the data as we're watching who's signing up for this thing is companies and organizations are sending their, their people to take this Art of Gathering digital course in cohorts meaning they take it together, right? Eight people mm -hmm. taken together. It's a six-week online virtual course to teach people gathering intelligence. They bring a real example, their weekly staff meeting. They're going to reimagine their weekly staff meeting. And they together walk through what's the purpose of this thing, right? What's the math and the poetry? How do we connect people in a meaningful way? How do we protect people in there? How do we close? Do we need this at all? But part of what happens is the question you just asked is they are, by actually normalizing talking about the social technology of how they meet, they're normalizing the fact that it's chosen. They're normalizing the fact that they don't have to necessarily do it in this way. And one of the biggest reasons we don't actually change how we gather is that we, are, we don't have the language to even talk about that this is something that we don't have to do in this way. And the pandemic mm -hmm. has upended that at some level, but also the conversation I mean, the fact that most people, many, many, many people don't want to go back to physical work is forcing a reckoning within organizations to ask, do we force some people come back to work two, th you know, two, three days a week? Are we going to learn how to gather hybrid? Are we going to learn how to gather on Zoom? And given that that's going to be a huge, I think the future of work is going to be knowing how to create psychological togetherness, whether people are in the room or not. And the future of work is mastering the skill of creating collective meaning for your people, one gathering at a time, without all having to be the same. And you have to figure out how to do that on a Zoom and how to do that hybrid-wise and how and when to do that in person and to have the discernment to know when to choose what. But, but basically, when you are not together in the same building physically, how you actually run your virtual meetings is all you have to shape culture. 
And so what you do in those 60 minutes or 25 minutes or 90 minutes is literally what people think this place is. Wow. That's so much opportunity. Also, a lot of, uh, I think, if I'm thinking throughout the organizations that I know on people's level, you understand that that is the primary lens through which most people are determining their level of satisfaction at work, that becomes a big deal. Totally. It's huge. And huge. by the way, it's also, you know, the way we talked about meaning making earlier, like these are skills and you talk about what is it like to be in a place? Do people like to be here? It's not just like, it's treating people well, obviously, mm -hmm. but what does that actually mean? Part of it is like, how do we celebrate? Right when something goes really well, what how are how are we honoring people? I was at a I was at a film launch at a big conference, and it was this very important film for this company. It was like sort of the one film they chose of the year to sort of be on to to highlight. And all of the filmmakers were in the room, all of the managers, all of the suits, like everyone was there to kind of to to to, to mark this thing. They knew that's why it was there. That was the name of the party, and. It was three hours. They focused, you know, the food was beautiful. The night was beautiful, all this stuff. And people ate, they chatted, they drank, they kind of waited around. And at some point they started going home. And I was like, what is happening here? Like, where, where's the toasts? Where's the thank you? Like, thank you. Yeah. Literally every person, right? 72 people touch a film. They're all in the room. Where's the dinging of the glass, pulling out the notes and saying, you know what? What an occasion. What an evening. Can you believe that this thread, this germ of an idea started with you over there, Laura? And because you rode on a, you know, on an Amtrak and forgot your suitcase and you realized, and then you called Jim over there and he had this brilliant idea, right? And then you, and then you brought in these beautiful filmmakers. It doesn't matter what you actually say, right? And I, I remember I actually said to one of the executives, I mean, I, sometimes I have no shame. I'm so, <laughs> I, think, I think you should say something. And he said to me, I have my notes in my pocket. And I said, why don't you read them? And he said, I don't want to kill the vibe. And I said, no, 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 no. I don't want to impose. I'm not sure if that's the vibe right now. And it's like, dude, it's always the vibe. <laughs> Right. And, and, and when I say Make like, it's not yeah. just like, I'm not like, you know, sort of this meaning monster. <laughs> I, this is like, it, why, why does this matter? These are the moments a community is formed. These are the moments where like, was this worth it? Was my work seen? D like, but also where you actually show, what did you notice of who did what in a team? How did you, how did they perform? How, why was actually the light set up as important, right? As, the script writer in that one moment, how did you, and so these are the moments, they don't happen to happen all the time, but to actually push forward creative teams and make people want to actually feel and know that their work is meaningful, you got to tell them. And ideally mm -hmm. there are certain moments in community life, you do it collectively. I am so grateful to have been under your tutelage for the last 60 minutes. Uh, and thank you so much for your work. I do want to call attention to the course you've mentioned a couple times. It's available on your website. Maybe you can give us a little insight on there. I'll give some other coordinates in a second, but give us a little more there before we let you go. Thank you so much. I, um, 
we created this Art of Gathering digital course in part to kind of break down and demystify how you take an ordinary gathering and make it extraordinary. (laughs) And the core, we ran all of these design sprints with teachers and party planners and wedding planners and managers to actually ask like, what is your, what is your need? Like, where does this process break down for you? And we designed this course based on what they told us where you bring a specific high stakes gathering that you're worried about, that you at some level have some responsibility. It could be a leadership retreat. It could be a concert. It could be a family reunion. It could be a wedding. You bring a real gathering from your life and you we, you walk through on your own timing and pace. It's with me. It's all pre-recorded, virtual. There's a ton of materials. There's a workbook. And I take you through case study by case study, it's much like this conversation, but lots and lots of examples, work and personal and community, to help you distill and figure out how do you actually cre- how do you actually host this thing? And my hope, the kind of the the hopeful jujitsu of the course is we're giving you real practical skills and you'll come out with a gathering that you then know how to, you know, know and want to host as creating meaning with and for your people. But through that process of a real example, you're building these skills that are going to serve you in any part of your life where you're trying to bring people together in a way that changes them. So valuable. I love that it's a skill, folks. This is a learnable skill. As someone who um, I, I identified as extroverted for a very, very long time, and, and I liked to be with other people, but have since taken on more of a host role and a gathering of creative minds. I built a learning platform around this idea. It, it, it fundamentally changed me to realize that this was a skill and it was something that I got a lot of joy from. I'm still a sophomore relative to yourself, Priya, but my the gratitude, your work has inspired me very, very deeply. I want to point to not just your website, which is Priya, P-R-I-Y-A, Parker.com, but that's also where you can get the course, which is course.priyaparker.com. Um, I think you can get to it from the site as well, right? You, mm-hmm. I know you, you can link a- to the book. Um, your and I, I would just say, you know, I, you joke, you're a sophomore. Like, I still think of myself as a freshman in many ways. Like, I still <laughs> flub things up all the time. I really do. I still get nervous and realize like, ah, you know, like, oh, I shouldn't have said that. Right. I, I'm a facilitator and I still, we debrief every meeting and I think about what I can learn. And it, it's, it's really, the reason I think it's so interesting is because it's an endless canvas. Yeah. Right. And it's, it's like, it's literally you, you, David Brooks had this saying a few years ago, no question worthy of pursuit is answerable in a lifetime. And I think this meets that standard, right? Like how, like how we bring our people together, how we create temporary norms to see if they can bleed into the rest of society. Or if this is just one time, one place never happens again, this is fundamentally fascinating. And it's true in political life, in social life, in personal life. And by the way, we're gathering all the time. I'm just asking you to shift your lens a little bit. Thank you so much for bringing attention to something that um, is, as you've pointed out, is a creative act. And I think a lot more people who have listened to our show today are going to take that to heart and imbue some creativity in it. Um, Thank you again for, for being on the show again. Folks, the book is The Art of Gathering, How We Meet and Why It Matters. Thousands of five-star ratings on the major platforms. Um, Very grateful to have had you as a guest. That course sounds amazing. 
Um, thank you. And is there anything else that you'd like to wrap up? Uh, I'm trying to do my best as the host, but as a <laughs> professional well. host, as a professional Exactly. Host, no pressure. I mean, I just thank you so much for having me. Thank you for um, honoring me. You're a wonderful, wonderful host and your close read of my work. I really enjoyed so much of of being your guest and, and with your listeners. And I, I think the last thing I would just say, I said this already is if this all feels totally overwhelming, just start with becoming a little bit more aware of how you guessed. That's I have not had the, the, the verb to guest is amazing. You were saying as I want to get better at guesting. I think that that's so awesome. And I'm going to take that to heart. Thank you again for being on the show. Um, until next time from Priya and myself, uh, thanks for tuning in and we bid you a good day until next time. All right. Hey, before you go, thanks so much for listening. And if you got value from this show, chances are your community will too, right? In the particular lies the universal. Please share this link to the show with a friend or mention the show on social. That is a huge benefit for us in hopefully in exchange for providing value to you. I want you to know that I really appreciate your time, the attention, anything that you give to the show and the questions that you ask our guests, either on social media or through my text community, all of that is pure gold. This community, like any community, is a testament to that old phrase, a rising tide floats all boats. And by elevating one another, by sharing and resharing this show, the tidbits that you learn and the experiences you take away all of that has a collective, massive, positive impact on the world. So just a quick thank you. I appreciate all the effort you put into sharing this show. All right, that's a wrap. Let's put today's episode into practice and get back to growing together. Mm-hmm.